There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends. But who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Hi, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Nada Youssef, and you're listening to Health Essentials Podcast by Cleveland Clinic. We're recording here at Cleveland, Clin Cleveland Clinic main campus with Dr. Sharif Shaki. Dr. Shaki is a colorectal surgeon in the Digestive Disease and Surgery Institute here at Cleveland Clinic, and today he's going to shed some light on diverticular disease, a common condition that affects the large intestine. And please remember, this is for informational purposes only, and it's not intended to replace your own physician's advice. Thank you so much for being here today. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. All right, so let's start with what is diverticular disease? So overall, the bowel is a long tube that uh, works on absorbing nutrients and fluids so the body can benefit from it. And the last part of it, which is the colon, particularly the sigmoid colon, basically it's a con it conveys the stool before it comes out through the rectum. So sometimes there is weakness points in the, this tube, if you think of plumbing. These weak points where the blood vessel traverse the muscular layer creates a weak point through which outpouching the diverticula can happen into, along that line. These diverticula can stay there and as long as they're not causing problems or symptoms, then nothing, uh, nothing is wrong with it. So diverticula is like a pocket or a pouch it's in out, your colon? In, 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 yes, in brief definition, it's outpouchings mm -hmm. through the colon wall. Most commonly found in the sigmoid colon, which is the part of the colon just before the rectum. So is this a pretty serious disease or is it pretty common? Having diverticular or diverticulosis mm -hmm. should not be considered a disease on its own because many people are living with it. In fact, if you look at the numbers, um, about 15% will have diverticulosis. And of these people, 20-25% will get symptoms. And of these 20-25%, only 15% almost will get surgeries. 15% will yes. get surgeries? Yes. So 15% will have it and those 15% will have surgeries or yes. of these? No. It's, uh, if, you have, if you see 100 person with diverticulosis, 15% to 20% will have symptoms. And of these people, if you have 100 person that have symptoms from diverticulosis, which could be diverticulitis or bleeding or anything else that we're going to talk about later, then about 15 to 20% of these, or 25%, will have surgery. Wow. Okay, so here comes the hard part. Can you clarify slowly <laughs> the difference between diverticula, diverticulosis, diverticulitis? This is, this is a very good question. So if somebody developed the outpouching, then they have diverticulosis. Because, and to make it easier for the, for the audience, Osis, from the medical term Greek, means having the things there. Itis means inflammation. So diverticulosis means the presence of diverticula in the colon. Diverticulitis means inflammation of these diverticula. Wow. So diverticulosis by itself is not harmful at all. As long as it's not symptomatic, then the patient should, we should not call them patients because 
we can have it, but we don't know because we don't we don't exhibit symptoms. I see. So we can have it, just not know if we have it until we get the symptoms. So exactly. can we talk about the symptoms of something like diverticulitis? Because that means inflamed, right? Good question. So the diverticulosis can present itself in a variety of ways. Number one, it could be as simple as abdominal pain, cramps, because the muscle layer in the sigmoid colon contracts a lot. So you get the sharp, crampy abdominal pain that can happen with food uh, or with meals. And it's usually in the left lower quadrant of, of the patient where the sigmoid colon lives or where the sigmoid colon exhibits its symptoms. The second thing which is most commonly known among people is the diverticulitis, the inflammation. And basically, abdominal pain, mainly left lower quadrant, maybe fever, maybe chills, as low as this and the extreme of the spectrum can be fever, extreme uh, abdominal pain that provoke the patient or prompt the patient to go to the hospital and they may get even emergency surgery. And I would like to say more about the, the spectrum of the symptoms and what can happen with each one. But I know we're having a section for treatment, Nada. Yes. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop here and continue with the symptoms. And then when we go to treatment, we can continue that. The second one is diverticular bleeding, where this outpouching, when you look at it, it is a very weak part of the muscle layer. It is not full thickness of the bowel. It is just two very tiny layers of the bowel, which means it's not protecting. So if there is blood vessel in this outpouching that gets eroded, it will bleed, hence diverticular bleeding. Then there is long-term complication of the diverticulitis. And basically, there can be the chronic or the long-term inflammation on and off, on and off, or subclinical, which means symptoms are subtle and vague, but happening for a long time. Then what can happen is the chronic diverticular inflammation can result into deposit of lots of scarring tissue. That scarring tissue causes called fibrosis, and this will called narrowing of the bowel lumen, which cause stricture. That's the narrowing, which cause obstruction. So the, sec the second, the second uh, one in the spectrum could be diverticular bleeding, which basically, the, if you look at this outpouching, the diverticula, which is just outpouching, this is um, not a full thickness of the bowel. It's very tiny, two layers of the bowel, which means any blood vessel in these two layers is subjected to get eroded and uh, traumatized. When this happens, it will cause bleeding, hence diverticular bleeding. This, the third part of it is a sequela or a consequence of the long-term inflammation, the diverticulitis. Either on and off, recurrent diverticulitis comes, heals, and then relapse again, or subtle, subclinical, asymptomatic, it's like pain there, on and off, but not really strong to prompt the patient to go to the ED. So the chronicity of inflammation may result into A, lots of scar tissue deposition, which will result in narrowing of the colon, also known as um, stricture, and this will cause obstructive symptoms. The second one, that with the small slight hole called perforation in the diverticula that creates a tunnel that burrows through the colonic wall and this tunnel may open into whatever nearby structure could be urinary bladder known as colovesical fistula can uh, open through the vagina colovaginal fistula can open through the bowel coloenteric fistula or colocolic fistula. So basically, whatever this tunnel that originates in the colon opens into will result into the medical term known and fistula. And this prompts surgical management. Um, so these are the things that are 
resulting from this in the spectrum of diverticulitis and last but not least is the most commonly one encountered is the abscess because diverticulitis will result from a macro or micro hole perforation in the colon this perforation can be sealed and can be simple or it can be basically large when it is large hole it will result into dissemination of fecal material which is in the colon into the abdominal cavity which should not exist there this will result into aggressive inflammation that will ultimately result into an abscess, hence the diverticular abscess. So does this present itself as blood and stool? The bleeding mm -hmm. may result into bloody bowel movement. Oh, okay. Um, inflammation only on and off may result into blood and stool that can be seen overt or can be not seen occult. Um, the abscess will result into with severe abdominal pain that the patient will not tolerate or the person at this point will not tolerate and will go to the ED and the workup will, will take place at this point. So let's talk about diagnosis. Um, what does the doctor's appointment look like if, you know, if someone has that disease and they show up? What kind of tests are being done as well? This is an excellent question. So based on what I explained previously, you can tell that there are symptoms that can prompt an office visit and there are symptoms secondary to a sequela of diverticulitis that can prompt uh, emergency department visit mm -hmm. so if there's abdominal pain which is called simple uncomplicated diverticulitis which means there is inflammation of these diverticula but it hasn't resulted in any of the complication of the diverticular disease so the patient will go to the primary care doctor, family doctor, or a surgeon, or colorectal surgeon. Um, based on these, we don't have to scan them. We can rely on the symptoms. I just want to highlight that here in Cleveland Clinic, we treat humans, human bodies. We don't treat reports, or CAT scans, or numbers. So we'll listen to the patient complain, and we can differentiate. And after we conclude that the diagnosis is simple diverticulitis, usually we prescribe an oral antibiotic, for seven to 10 days and follow up with the patient afterwards, make sure that the attack or the episode had healed. The other part of this is severe abdominal pain for diverticular complication, which is most commonly is the complicated uh, diverticulitis. And usually this require a visit to the emergency department because at this point we need to perform a CT scan of the abdomen. For those who don't know, a CT scan is an X-ray that basically shows us what's from the outside to the inside of the body so we can uh, delineate and characterize the pathological process of the disease. And usually we can tell that there's inflammation in the sigmoid colon where the uh, perforation had occurred and we can tell if there is an abscess with it or there is no abscess with it. Um, also, we can tell if there is suspicion of a fistula, which is the tunnel between the colon and another organ nearby. We can suspect that from the CT scan. Last but not least, if there is bleeding, definitely the patient will go to the emergency department. Among the workup of the bleeding, after resuscitation and proper stabilization of the patient, then the workup will include colonoscopy to make sure what is the source of the bleeding, among other radiographic uh, battery of investigation that can happen, diagnostic as well as therapeutic. So what, you're, what would warrant an ED visit could be bleeding, um, extreme abdominal pain. Um, is fever a part of, of this diagnosis as well? If fever is a sign okay. that so we rely, we, we, it, 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 it's a clue that mm -hmm. there is something bigger than just simple inflammation. I see. 
It can be low grade with simple, but usually with abscess, they usually shoot up high. So how long do flare-ups usually last and do they ever go away on their own? So if it is a simple diverticular disease or simple diverticulitis that's uncomplicated, it takes a few days. If it is uh, complicated diverticulitis, it also takes a few days up to a week, but usually this requires admission of the patient because the difference is oral antibiotic versus admission in the, in the hospital, nothing by mouth, about complete bowel rest, and IV and intravenous antibiotics, antibiotics by the vein. So we have more, uh, con more powerful treatment for uh, to basically to cool off and calm down the inflammation. Um, and then, plus or minus, if we're going to do interventional procedure for the type of pathology that we are dealing with. And we'll get a little bit more into treatment here in a second, but I wanted to ask you first about risk factors that are associated with this disease. And if um, it is more likely for someone that has Crohn's or IBD or some kind of gut issue, are they more likely to get that disease? So uh, I will take this question and distribute it, divide it into two components. Component number one, the risk factors, the studies, the large population studies that have uh, tried to study the epidemiology uh, of diverticulitis found that A, it increases with age. So by age of 80, about 80% 80 will have had diverticulosis. Um, also, the older the age, the more susceptibility to get diverticular attack or diverticulitis or diverticular bleeding. Um, this is number one. Number two factors associated with diverticular, uh, diverticular disease is smoking, high-fat diet, red meat, uh, sedentary life, and obesity. Uh, these are factors that are known and have been mentioned in the literature that they are associated with diverticular disease. Okay, so into treatment. Um, I know there, you know, it sounds like there is mild diverticulitis and there is mm -hmm. more severe. Um, what kind of treatments would you be doing for both? Um, again, it, it depends. As I explained, the spectrum is, uh, is, is large. So this is the time that I'm going to conclude for the audience what happens and how we, how, we deal it, how we deal with it. So basically, if it is diverticulosis, which we said the, the presence of diverticula, no symptoms, nothing. If it is diverticular diverticulitis, then here is the break point. Is it simple, uncomplicated diverticulitis, thus inflammation of the diverticula? Then this can be treated as outpatient. Um, some doctors prefer to put to recommend for the patient to have a clear liquid diet, not high high volume diet, you know, plain diet, and oral antibiotic for seven to ten days and follow up to make sure that it resolved. If it is complicated diverticulitis, which means there is perforation, this perforation can be just the perforation without abscess. This requires, in my opinion, admission to the hospital, stronger antibiotic treatment, which is antibiotic by the vein, bowel rest, and then we start feeding the patient until they feel better, and then we send them home. If it is an, a di complicated diverticulitis plus abscess, then if this abscess is accessible for x-ray, then we put a drain in it to control the infection. That the concept is basically putting the straw in the juice box. So we try to put a drain. If, if that abscess is accessible safely for the radiologist, they put the drain in. The drain usually stays there for a few days, up to a week, with the, in, the, blood, uh, with the antibiotics in the vein. And, uh, and then based on how the patient performs and how the clinical course dictates, the, the, the treatment occurs or takes place. 
ultimately the drain to, is to come out and we feed the patient and we see how things are. Um, if it is bleeding, as we said, this requires emergency department visit and it's some, some sort of emergent situation that we have to deal with, stabilize the patient, resuscitate, and then investigate the cause of that bleeding. Any complication usually will ultimately result into surgical management. And this is when they come and, they, they come and be referred to me or to us here. Uh, that being said, some people with simple diverticulitis, they are referred to us and we usually talk to them about the disease, it's just making acquaintance and we don't offer them surgery at this point. So when is surgery offered? Uh, when there is a complicated diverticulitis, when there is a frequent recurrent disease, re relapsing attacks of diverticulitis, uh, another one Im very much important component, if a person who is, um, we call them immunocompromised or immunosuppressed, this is a person with a transplanted organ, a person who has this other medical disease that require uh, consuming constantly uh, steroids or immunosuppression. These patients, the immunity system is not well equipped to defend the body against the diverticulitis. Hence, the progression of the disease can be uh, faster and result into catastrophic complication. For these patients, we offer surgery sooner than later. We don't actually treat them like the normal, competent, immune system people. Um, also, when there is the long-term sequela of diverticulitis, such as, as we descri described before, colovisic, any fistulization, and stricture, narrowing, because nobody can live with obstruction. So these things all prompt surgical intervention. So I want to jump to diet really fast. Um, first of all, I want to talk about what to eat when you're uh, when you have this disease. Because I've read that people who develop diverticulitis may not have good enough good bacteria in their gut. So does something like probiotic yogurt is is that helpful or what? Um, so adopting lifestyle healthy lifestyle is good. Uh, there is no proven uh, evidence that this may prevent or prove. It all depends on how, how the studies are designed and what the, the outcomes. Um, but usually when there is acute attack of diverticulitis, we want to get the, give the colon a little bit of a rest. However, after that, the five main factors we talked about, so we try to give high fiber diet after the attack is done. We try to minimize fat. We try to uh, minimize the red meat. Uh, there is also um, a theory about nuts, seeds, popcorn and corn, uh, that may this may precipitate an attack. In fact, they do not. They do not. Uh, so I always tell my patients, um, there are certain things in life that you are your own doctor in it. So you have to try. And uh, one person will tell me, I cannot eat almonds. It, it irritates my bowel or it will aggravate my diverticulite. And some other person will tell me, I can eat anything and it doesn't really uh, matter. So each person has to be his or her own doctor in that. They have to be engaged. They have to feel what's causing the trouble in the gut and what's not causing the trouble in the gut in their diet. So listen to your body and kind of go from there. But are there, are there any foods that we are supposed to stay away from to uh, prevent any kind of inflammation? And in my mind, no. Thing? Okay. All right. Good to know. So um, we've talked about complications. Um, and I've read that about 25% of people with acute diverticulitis develop complications. Um, so what do these complications look like? It could go from the bleeding and things like that. Yes. But are they due to not treating the disease early? Or is that just kind of depends on every person? It, uh, it, it depends. Um, and as, as I uh, described it or explained it in a simple form, 
um, long-standing inflammation, regardless complicated or non-complicated, can result into these tunnels, which you know, known as the fistula, uh, can result into the deposition of scarring tissue because long inflammation, and this can result into the narrowing and obstruction, uh, or can cause basically the bleeding. And these are the long uh, sequela or long-term consequences of, of diverticulitis. And sometimes I see patients coming to me and their first complaint that they are having air while they are urinating, which is called fistula between the colon and the urinary bladder. So the colon has air, the urinary system doesn't have air. So one of the signs that when they pass air through the, while they are peeing, this means there is a communication with part of the gut. So this is so sometimes the f the first sign that they come with is this. Um, so they haven't exhibited any signs before, and that's what led me to say it could be subtle that the patient can just live with it and tough it out without going to a doctor or going to the emergency department. Okay, great. And then my last question for you is prevention. So if you could tell our listeners uh, if there is anything we could do to prevent. Diverticula, diverticulitis, diverticulosis, or prevent them from becoming infected. Um, anything that we can talk about, because it doesn't sound like there's a cure, right? No cure for this. So, what kind of um, um, lifestyle do we need? So, if we if we remember when we talked about the factors associated with diverticular disease, if you look at them, they are smoking, obesity, high fat content in diet, high red high red meat, and sedentary sedentary lifestyle. And if you look at these bundle, these bundle, you're going to find them the same in heart disease. You're going to find them the same in lung disease. You're going to find them over, all over, the, across the board with many other diseases. So briefly, adopting a healthy lifestyle with moderation, everything, will impact not only diverticular disease, will impact our heart uh, health, our lung health, our general body health. Also, consuming lots of processed fat, uh, processed carbohydrates, sorry, uh, also will result into lots of, lots of gut troubles. So, yes, if we have tried to minimize, I'm not going to say to cut off, minimize and be moderate in, with the fat content, junk food, uh, red meat, uh, smoking, um, being healthy and walking at least twice a day or once a day, then yes, this will improve diverticular disease, which is the focus of, the, of today, and overall our health uh, in life. Excellent. I want to ask you one last question. Um, with high fat, I want to pick on that a little bit. So when when you talk about high fat, is it is there good fat versus bad fat? Like if someone in my family member has this, um, is olive oil a bad idea versus? It's a good idea. Yeah. Like what what is is there good fat and bad fat that we should stay away from? Um, so the like the olive oil that's 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 a good uh, good product that yeah. can be used in cooking instead of butter, for example. Yes. Okay, so this, this is an, an example of things. Uh, when you're eating meat, you don't have to eat lots of the fat around the meat or chicken or turkey. So all these things, you don't want to eat it. Uh, you want to actually try to avoid and minimize it. Also the carbohydrates uh, and the healthy pattern of eating when somebody basically fasts all day and then all of a sudden they come and indulge on a heavy meal by night, then you're switching your metabolism to starvation the whole day. So that meal that you're going to eat, your body will hold on every single cell or every single compound in it as if because it's in starvation mode. And this is how we gain weight and we say, well, I'm not eating all day long, but your eating pattern is wrong. That's a very good point because yes. there's a lot of people that do intermittent fasting, but you're saying the first meal of the day should be a stay away from fat, stay away from carbs and make it a healthy it's, meal. It, it, it depends. Okay. It depends because there are lots of, lots of diet regimens that uh, switch the metabolism, like keto diet, for example, mm -hmm. fat is allowed. 
but there is no carbs completely. So, but since fat is allowed, don't go and eat all the fat you, you can, but you need it in moderation and try to eat the healthy fat. This will open your mechanism to use the fat in your body towards creating energy because there is no carbohydrates available. So. You're full of information today. That was very, very pleasurable. Thank you so much for My being pleasure. here today. And if you'd like to schedule an appointment with the uh, Cleveland Clinic's Digestive Disease and Surgery Institute, you can call 216-444-7000. And for more information on diverticular disease, please visit clevelandclinic.org slash diverticular. And to listen to more of our Health Essentials podcast from Cleveland Clinic experts, you can visit our website at clevelandclinic.org slash HE podcasts, or you can subscribe on iTunes. And for more Cleveland Clinic news, health tips, and information, make sure you follow us on Cleveland Clinic, just one word, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you so much. We'll see you again next time. This concludes this Cleveland Clinic Health Essentials podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.